Hey there, podcast fans. Are you looking for a new true crime podcast? Check out Gangster House, the new podcast from Imperative Entertainment. Gangster House has everything. Hospital hitmen, FBI informants, a prison escape, a van explosion, and so much more. I'm Jason Hoke, creator of Gangster House and producer of podcast mega hits, Atlanta Monster, Broken Hearts, and Monster, the Zodiac Killer. Listen to Gangster House right now on your favorite podcast player. Welcome to the More Perfect Union, the podcast that offers real debate without the hate. I'm Kevin Kelton, and I'm joined by Greg Matusak. A common sense liberal who, if I had $500,000, I think I'd pick a better school than UCLA or USC (laughs) (laughs) from Cincinnati, Ohio. To try to bribe your kids way into, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Maybe Yale? (laughs) They were on the list, too. (laughs) And we're also joined by Rebecca Kushmeider. Um, who is a progressive feminist and the daughter of a Yaley. And back in, in 2000, when George W. Bush was running and he kept saying these dumbass things, my dad kept insisting that he had to be smart if he went to Yale. And I said, Dad, <laughs> there are two ways to get into Yale. The first is be smart enough to get into Yale. And the second is have your father be head of the CIA. There's a front door, there's a back door, and now we know there's a side door. Yeah. There's a third um, way. <laughs> and I'm Kevin Kelton, a moderate Democrat who has always taken the side door throughout my life. And it's gotten me to where I am today. We're going to talk about the college admissions scandal later on. But first, we want to thank everybody for listening and remind you to check out our Instagram page, MPU Fan Club, where we post photos of us and of things that relate to the podcast, so please check that out, MPU Fan Club. And we are looking for a social media guru to help us grow the MPU community. So if you're interested, please email us at mpupodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you and get some of your expertise working for us. So gang, we have to start this week with sad news. This happens about now once every month or six weeks. We have to start with the news of a shooting, this one, the mosque shooting that happened in New Zealand. I believe at last count, we've still lost 49 souls with many scores of others still in the hospital fighting for their lives. And it brings us back to the topic of white nationalism, which amazingly, there is still some disagreement on whether it's a good thing, a bad thing, or whether it exists or not. What do you guys think? Well, it exists. I, you know, people who are disputing that are also probably disputing whether or not the earth is round. Yeah. You know, when when people are asking, you know, is this a problem? That's ridiculous. Of course it's a problem. I mean, you would, you would have to be, I don't know, almost pushing an agenda of white nationalism. (laughs) And, you know, and I say that in a sarcastic way, but. Well, clearly you're talking about President Trump, who said that he, who said that he does not think white nationalism is a big problem. He thinks it's just a small number of people. And I would say back to President Trump. Well, you know, also, there's only a small number of people that come across the border every year. I mean, if you think a few hundred thousand is a small number, well, then fine. Then it's not a problem. And then the border crossings are not a problem. But if you think that hundreds of thousands or even millions of people are a significant number, as I think all three of us do, then yes, white nationalism in this country and around the world is a major problem that needs to be addressed. 
Well, I mean, you know, we talk about it being a rise in white nationalism, and I don't know that that's true. I think there has always been a thread of violent extremism, and there are periods in history where it's forced underground. And right now we're in a period of history where it is being given some sort of approval at top levels of government, see also Trump, Donald J., and they feel empowered to come out and stand in the sunshine and shout their garbage and take up arms against those they feel are encroaching on their little white privilege world. So it's it's kind of like, it's not that it's an uptick, it's just that it's more visible and more approved. It's come out of the shadows. Yeah. All right. We, we, we talked about this before the show. It's not that they approve. Because at no point did, and I'll, I'll defend Trump here, at no point did he approve of white nationalism. At no point did he say, you know, when it comes to white nationalism, hey, those guys are okay with me. Because he didn't. And we talked about this also with the, um, the YouTube user PewDiePie. Okay. Yeah. No point has PewDiePie ever said, Hey, white nationalism, you're okay. But for some reason, white nationalists identify with these two figures and they're both hugely popular. But at no point, and let's be clear here, did either of these two figures say white nationalism is bad? And maybe Trump didn't say white nationalism is A-OK this time, but after Charlottesville, he called some of those white nationalists very fine people. And it doesn't take much for groups like that to feel that they've been given a stamp of approval. Look at QAnon. They can turn anything into validation of their belief system. So Trump having once said that there are very fine people involved, all these white nationalists might be out there going, yeah, fuck yeah, I'm a very fine person. Check me out. What do you guys think of that video of the teenager in Australia who broke the egg on the legislator's head after he said something that was, I guess, uh, an Islamophobic comment? I can't remember that guy's name. He issued a whole statement. He's like, boy, I'm really sad that 49 people uh, died, but we cannot discount the fact that Muslim invaders are kind of a, a negative force in our society. And usually they're the perpetrators, not the victims. So he's a jackass. And this teenager strolled on up and broke an egg over the guy's head, which is almost as funny as punching Richard Spencer in the head. And then the legislator turned around and punched the kid twice in the face. Well, let's, let's, let's play devil's advocate here. I think we would all agree that breaking an egg on someone's head is not funny. It's an act of violence. It's not the same as shooting someone, but it's an act of violence. And at what point does a public official have a right to defend themselves? Well, probably the right ended after the first punch when he turned around and saw that it was a teenager who was unarmed except with a cell phone and an egg. It was a slap, and he saw that it was a teenager before he slapped him. And I'm not, I'm not standing up for, for either of them. Yeah, well, I I think he was I he whirled around. He was he was mid slap when his eyes actually hit the guy. So I'll give him I'll give him that. But um, okay. But at what point does does any person have a right to defend themselves when when physically assaulted? Yeah, you know, I'll tell you something. If somebody walked up to me when I was with my fiance or with my family and threw an egg at me, they'd be down on the ground very quickly. See, I'm because I'm a woman, my first instinct is always to make noise and draw attention and not not fight back. So it's 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 a different self-defense instinct. Well, he's a man. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but, but that's what I'm and, saying. And like that's why men... the idea of physically fighting back sounds strange to me because the first thing I would do is scream. 
So we were we, we we talked about this again before the show. We have great talks before the show. Uh, we should record some of them, almost like yeah. a podcast. Yeah. So there was another we should podcast. Record those and just forget this stuff. Yeah. So there, <laughs> there was another podcast I was listening to called um, "Behind the Bastards" about George Lincoln uh, Rockwell, who's the founder of the American Nazi movement, and one of his his. Um, moves it was this was his go-to move was he would go in he would incite violence or some sort of disruption and that would be what the media would cover and from these little media events whether it be a slapping he would try to incite some violence okay and he'd say that went great he would then try to get donations like look you know we're under attack these people are attacking us and he would get you know and he said that would be worth a thousand dollars right there so there was a uh, a group and i i wish i could remember uh it was it was um that finally said, look, what we're going to do is we're, we're not going to ignore them, but we are, we are going to try to strategically nullify these situations. We are going to try to make sure that the news outlets do not cover this. We are not going to, uh, promise like we are just going to ask them nicely, like, Hey, they're terrible people. Do not cover them. We are going to try to defend ourselves, but we are not going to attack. We are not going to throw the first punches, and we are going to try to make sure that there's, you know, if they are marching, if they say terrible things. And once they put the strategy in, uh, um, in place to like not the punch a Nazi defense offensive, which was working before, but it was getting them a lot of donations to, uh, to like completely you know, nullified their donation base, it cut down their money donations like like a hundred and sixty percent. They weren't getting the the publicity and everything. So there's a lot to be said for that. That kid is famous now because, you know, he started a disruption. And he's probably gonna make some money off this because this guy punched him. And granted he started the fight. I have said in the past, punching a Nazi's okay. And I was probably wrong. I say probably because I'm still kind of torn. Nazis are... <laughs> I am! No, Nazis... Nazis are extremely punchable. Well, what if somebody turned around and said punching a socialist is okay? Right, right. This is why I'm I'm torn. Well, but... Socialists haven't committed any genocides. Well, neither have any of the Nazis who are alive today. No, but they're they're advocating it. Well... Guys, you're, you're advocating violence here. I'm sorry. I'm, I know. I know. Trust me. This is why I'm <laughs> And I guess I am by saying that that the man had a right to defend himself. So I guess we're all in this. We're, we're all terrible people. We are all terrible people we're today. Terrible man, we don't people. have DJ here and it turns into anarchy. We're all fighting. <laughs> yeah, DJ, no more cons for you. Get back here from your Get travel. Get back here. <laughs> yes, DJ is off this week and DJ, we do miss you. Is he really at a con or is he at a, um, what's that guy that he's, he's, uh, Oh, the the one presidential candidate he's um he's endorsing Pete Davidson. Yeah, uh, Pete <laughs> Davidson. <laughs> I know it's not Pete Davidson. Hey, speaking of uh, politics, let's let's turn now to the Republican vote against Trump's emergency powers. Act. He lost, I think, twelve Republicans yeah. in that yeah. Senate vote, and now he he has issued his veto. Does there have to be a veto override vote or does Mitch McConnell have leeway there? I don't think he has to attempt a veto override. I, I don't I don't think there's a trigger in the override process where if the House votes on it, the Senate has to. That's what happened with the, the emergency declaration override. 
So he could just say there aren't the votes to override, so we're just not going to do anything? Yeah, I I believe so. Somebody out there, Google that and and make sure and correct us if I'm wrong. But I don't think Mitch McConnell has to schedule the vote. I have a prediction that if there is a vote, you will see uh, even fewer senators, uh, Republican senators, stand up to Trump than did this time. I think some of them will run for cover and try to make amends to the president for voting against him the first time, if there is an override vote. Which, out of curiosity, which ones do you think would would try to run? Oh, I'm not going to name them, but I'd say that at three to five could peel away. I think Kevin's right on this one, that that Republicans who were willing to vote on this because they knew the veto was coming would not be willing to push back hard enough to actually override a veto. You know, this was symbolic and it was to take back home, but at the end of the day, they knew Trump had the power to to forgive them for it or to right. appease himself for it. You know, I was surprised that Ohio's Senator Rob Portman, who I personally can't stand and I feel personally betrayed, uh, he did vote for this. He voted against Trump, which was a big surprise. And uh, Marco Rubio, I was not surprised. Uh, him and Senator Rand Paul, because I think they personally hate Trump, but they've gone along with this, you know, Mr. Toad's wild ride, you know, out of self-preservation. <laughs> So let's jump around here because we want to cover what's in the news this week, and it's not just politics and it's not just uh, white nationalism. There was also the uh, the college admission scandal in which uh, a couple of celebrities and a lot of very wealthy people were caught up in a con to get their kids into some elite colleges uh, through nefarious methods. I'm going through the college admissions process right now with my youngest son. And so this hits kind of close to home for us. You guys haven't gone through it with your kids yet, but you've certainly been through it yourselves and you know other people who are going through it. What's your take on this thing? Obviously, obviously it's wrong. Obviously, these people should be prosecuted. But why do we have a, a, a culture where otherwise good people can break the law for their kids and think it's okay? Well, I'm shocked that everyone was like, people did this? I just assumed that this was happening. Well, yeah, this is how rich people get into college. I didn't even know this was against the law. Having people take the test for your child? No, I just I just literally assumed that you would write a check to, like, rich people would say, look, I'll build you a, a attic. Well, no, they, they do that. And, that. and this is what this guy Singer explained to his clientele. He would say there's a front door to get into college, which is taking the test, getting good grades, and getting in that way. There's a back door, which is what you just explained, uh, Greg, what you just described, which is making these giant alumni donations, Donations. endowments, and, and building libraries, literally building buildings. And hopefully, they will give your kid consideration for that. But as we learned, there is what he calls a third way, a side door, which is cheating. (laughs) And he seemed to convince several very well-off parents that cheating was acceptable because the system is already screwed up. Therefore, whatever they do to further their kid's future is okay. And it's amazing to me, you know, when I think of William Macy, who's, of course, the spouse of Felicity Huffman, who's one of the people who was indicted, and he was one of the leads in Fargo. Mm -hmm. And he played a character who got caught up in an illegal scheme that got away from him and it cost, cost him his, his life and his freedom and everything else and, and killed his wife. But 
I just see him playing those same lines in real life. The stammering kind of, well, I'm not sure about this. You know, uh, yeah, I guess, but maybe not. I mean, how did this man get sucked into this? He seemed to know it was wrong, and yet he let his wife take over this train of their families and done incredible damage, not only to their family and their, their future earnings potential, but to their, their child's reputation. And to the other child who they didn't even do this for, that kid's reputation is probably soured as well. Well, and what's interesting to me is I haven't, you know, n- none of these people have issued any real statements, but I'm curious, who in that family wanted to go to Georgetown? Was this the school that this child had dreamed of for their entire life and everything about them was screaming Georgetown, 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 Georgetown? Or was this like this idea that adults came up with and it was, you know, like set dressing on the play of your life that you have a kid who goes to Georgetown? That's that's one of the things that kind of gets to me. I mean, Lori Laughlin's daughter is a social media influencer and she had actually said, hey, I'm going to USC, but you guys know I don't really like school. So I'm just there for the parties and the football games. Yeah. There's some kid who does really like school who didn't get to go to USC because Lori Laughlin's daughter sit there in a dorm room. And that's what bothers me so much about it. Yeah. And, you know, I wrote a uh, piece uh, that I posted on moreperfectunionpodcast.com this week about the idea of finding the perfect school or the right school for you. And as I have tried to explain to, to both of my kids and to all of the teenagers who I meet through them who are struggling with where do I go to college and what if I don't get into my first choice and everything? The right school for you almost always is the school that you end up going to. And I shared my personal story. I hope you guys will indulge me to share it here. I didn't get into my first choice of colleges. I ended up getting into a couple of mid-level colleges, uh, including Boston University. Now, right now, Boston University is considered an elite school. It wasn't an elite school when I went there. We were we were considered the the <laughs> um, the embarrassing school in Boston. I mean, we were there with MIT, Tufts, Brandeis, Harvard, and we all had an inferiority complex going there. But I got into BU and a couple of state schools. I ended up starting my college career at BU. I loved it there, but couldn't afford it, and had to transfer to a state school because I didn't want to go into great debt just to get a BU degree. Uh, I graduated from a New York State school. Which is a fantastic system, by the way. The New York State, yeah. And it was. I went to the University of Albany, which is one of their premier universities in the New York system. It was not even in my top 10 schools that I wanted to go to. I went there because it was the best school I could transfer into. But what happened to me there is I met some people who, like me, had a fondness for comedy writing, which is kind of a weird thing back in the 70s, not like today where you can major in being a comedy television writer or a television comedy writer. Um, and we produced a radio show for the campus radio station. And that let me hone my skills of comedy writing. And it led to other things. And I got a, a bachelor's degree in business administration and went and followed my passion. And lucky for me, it worked out. And I was able to cobble together a fairly good career Uh, As a comedy writer, only because I went to that school, it probably wouldn't have happened if I had stayed at Boston University. Well, my experience is that, you know, and similarly, my parents are Ivy Leaguers. They were very good students and and went to very good schools. My dad went to Yale. My mom went to Vassar. They went on to Columbia for their um, postgraduate work. 
And uh, I was not a good student. I stopped doing homework in about 10th grade and did not start again till grad school. So when it came time for me to apply to college, rather than trying to figure out a way to stick their square peg daughter into a round hole of the Ivies, we all just sat down and tried to find schools that were more appropriate for what my academic interests and abilities were. And I, you know, I didn't end up at Georgetown where I would have been doing terribly. So, you know, there's a certain lack of imagination and a lack of willingness to accept who your children are when you're really shoving them into a school that that isn't the right place for them too. And it's bad parenting as well as being a bad human being. It's true. And there's, by the way, there's a reason that these elite schools have rigorous academic criteria. If you take someone who's not ready for that and throw them in there, it's like throwing them in the deep end of the pool when they don't know how to swim. And I personally know of people who got into Ivy League schools who didn't belong there, somehow got in through a quirk of the system and bombed out in their first year and then transferred to schools that were more in line with their talents and their educational capabilities and put together great lives and great careers. You don't have to go to an Ivy League school. You don't have to go to Stanford. You don't have to go to UCLA to have a good life. Oh, most of us don't go to Stanford right. or UCLA or Harvard or Yale. There, there is a finite number of people who go to those universities. And I, I, you know, I don't know if all of you remember your early 20s and job hunting. There came a point where nobody cared where I went to college. They wanted yeah. to see that box checked. But by the time I was looking for maybe my third professional job, they just wanted to know about my previous two professional jobs. You know, right. your, your college education will get you so far. Unless unless what you're really doing is going there to hobnob with other people like you and not not go to a state school or a more diverse school and your your parents are trying to shelter you in a certain way. Now, Greg, we've talked over you and you're an educator, so we really should educator. listen to you. So, so let me let me I'm gonna be I, I'm gonna stop being Greg for a second. I'm gonna be DJ. <laughs> okay. And this is why you're all wrong. <laughs> okay. So DJ went to William and Mary, which is a very prestigious school, and I went to <clears throat> Miami University, which is considered by many the Ivy League of Ohio schools. And it is you know I got school. into Miami, Greg. I'm sure you did. I barely, did. I believe I got into you, know, you and I could have been classmates had it not been freezing cold on the day of my college visit. Right, <laughs> but but I will say this: there, there's a story that one thing that we haven't talked about is. There is something to many of, as far as admissions and as far as what people look for, and this is something that has been mentioned by many outlets. Um, there was one year that the model Nikki Taylor, there was a rumor that she was going to come to Miami University, okay, because she had been seen in Oxford, okay, and it was a huge deal. And for someone like Lori Laughlin's daughter at a campus that's kind of exciting just like having um uh what's hermione granger's uh emma watson emma watson at a university or fred savage at stanford or something like that Uh, okay so i'm trying to follow the logic here so we're talking about celebrities getting into college but not only select right, but celebrities kids also it's a draw if this if the school can say hey We've got, not only are we such a cool school that we have these minor celebrities and YouTube schools. We've got the mom from Full House or whoever she was on Full House. We've got her kid. That's really a draw. 
Have you seen how many people follow her on YouTube? It, well, it's it's a draw in as much as donors and the board of regents and you know yep. and, and okay. funders. Okay. It, it gives prestige to the school that leads to other things. It might not right. draw a student body, so, but it draws the attention of people. Once with again, checkbooks. just like punching a Nazi probably isn't the right thing to do. <laughs> I'm always going to come back to that, you know. This is, pr- there is a side to this that maybe, you know, maybe, I'm not saying the universities probably or maybe knew about this, but there is a, like everything, a money side to this. You know, I'm not saying that you can get money punching a Nazi, but there's probably but, a money side to this. Well, I'm not, I, I, I want to understand your point, Greg, because the scandal that we're talking about was not universities promoting these types of admissions. For their own good. It was people cheating on the SATs and the ACT exams, unbeknownst to the universities, and people in the athletic programs of a couple of these universities taking bribes to lie about recruiting the the students involved. The universities weren't behind this. The universities weren't benefiting from this. It was the children and their parents who were benefiting. If if USC's rowing team didn't really know, and if the university didn't know that both of Lori Laughlin's children weren't actually on the rowing team, come on. Well, no, the- they didn't because they the system was they trusted the coach who said, I'd like to recruit them. Now, the system is broken, but I take the universities at their word that they didn't do due diligence to actually check to see whether these kids were on rowing teams. In in one of the instances, this is great. One of the administrators, uh, like the high school counselor of one of the kids involved in the scandal, he found out that this kid had gotten into. And again, I wish I knew the specifics. It's not in front of me in the article. Whether it was Yale or one of these schools on a volleyball scholarship, a women's volleyball scholarship, and he wrote to the father saying, "I'm very confused because we don't have a volleyball team." And the father then wrote to this guy Singer and said he was offended that he thinks the high school counselor was digging too much and was invading his privacy. He didn't care that he had cheated to get his kid into college. He felt offended that the high school counselor was sticking his nose into it. (laughs) Yeah. Sounds about right. Sounds about right. And the best thing about an athletic scholarship at the Ivies and the Old Seven Sisters is that you don't actually end up playing on the team if you don't want to, but they don't give out athletic scholarships, really. It's a, we're giving you a scholarship and you can play on the, the volleyball team. And if it turns out you suck, you don't actually play on the team and you don't lose your scholarship. It's not like if you were going to Ohio State where if they hand you an athletic scholarship, you better be damn sure you can play. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, obviously, there's going to be a lot of reforms of the system based on this scandal. It's clearly the tip of the tip of of an iceberg. It's not going to fix the system, but hopefully a little more fairness will be injected into the college application system. But let me just say, I don't think that we have too many high school students listening to the More Perfect Union podcast, but I'll bet we have some parents of, of junior high and high school students. And let me just, again, kind of reaffirm what I said at top, which is, Trust that your kids will have a good college experience, even if they start off at community college and then transfer to the school of their choice. Don't worry so much about the fact that they didn't get into your alma mater or some school that you think has, you know, a Harvard mafia or a Yale mafia or a USC mafia that's going to get them a job or an internship. 
They'll do just fine in life. Let them be them and let them succeed on their own. If I have any wisdom at all, I think that that I'd like to impart to other people. Agreed. And with that, we will be right back. The More Perfect Union, Real Debate Without the Hate, available on iTunes and Stitcher. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, so now let's turn to the topic that never leaves us, the 2020 presidential election. And, of course, the Democratic race for the nomination is heating up. Beto jumped in this week, and apparently Kristen Gillibrand wasn't even in it officially yet, even though she's been (laughs) campaigning like a mad person all across the Midwest for the last, I think, six or eight weeks, ever since she went on Stephen Colbert's show and said that she was running for president. I found out just the other day that it wasn't even an official candidacy yet. I, I will give I will give either of you, if you close your eyes right now, and I'm watching you, if you can then name everybody who's running. Uh, Pete Davidson. <laughs> um, Kristen Wiig. Um... <laughs> Kristen, if you're listening, hi, Rebecca, Brighton, Class 91. Well, there's no need to to mention them all because most of them will drop out after getting a little bit of name recognition and then embarrassing themselves because they'll never get past 2% in the polls. <laughs> you're, so you're, there's you're, really only you're that five guy. players. You're that guy who says, hi, I don't actually need to know your name because we're not really going to be friends. I yeah, know well, you're, you're, you're that guy in high school who was mean to me. Listen, um, I know all their names, but let's be realistic. <laughs> You know, it's not going to happen for John Delaney. It's not going to happen for John Hickelooper. It's not going to happen for Jay Inslee. And I can yeah, go you on, talk and big on and when on and on. DJ's not here. <laughs> no, it's not, I mean, DJ would say the same thing. He knows it. So let's talk about the people who have a shot at it. Beto O'Rourke seems to be in it. Uh, uh, Kamala Harris seems to be in it. Amy Klobuchar may be in it. Cory Booker may be in it. Kirsten Gillibrand, I personally don't think, has a shot anymore. Uh, of, of course, Elizabeth Warren, Elizabeth and, Warren and Bernie Sanders are, as of now, in it. Bernie looking very strong based on his ability to raise money. And then Joe Biden will be getting in in the next couple of weeks, and he should be a player. So, you know, we're talking about six or seven people. And, and I was being generous to many of them, but that's okay. You know what? That's okay. I feel so good about the 2020 Democratic primary race. It doesn't mean I necessarily am convinced that a Democrat will win the presidency. I'm not convinced of that. But we have a broad, talented field of candidates. It's going to be fantastic watching them actually duke it out in the primaries. And I'm not going to make a decision until probably January or maybe even February of next year. And even then, it's going to be a soft decision because I don't want to get into that position again, for me personally, of like trying to kill all the other candidates. I'm going to like somebody better or think somebody has a better shot of winning, but I am open to anyone who can prove to a majority of Democrats that they're the person best to take the fight to Donald Trump. I will support that person as if they were my own mom or dad. Kevin, what's more important to you at this point, platform and issues or electability? Electability. To me, there is a 20% difference between from from Bernie 
or Tulsi Gabbard on the far left to, let's say, Joe Biden and Amy Klobuchar in what's considered the moderate wing of the Democratic Party, the difference between their positions is negligible. I'll be happy with any of them as president. What about you, Rebecca? Platform and issues or electability? Oh, right now I'm wallowing in platform and issues like a, a pig in a mud puddle. I'm so happy every time Elizabeth Warren, you know, basically throws a white paper at me and I can just read about how she would restructure drug manufacturing. And like, I'm, I'm really enjoying that. <laughs> how will I feel on primary day? I don't know because I, I'm my thing with the whole with the primaries is that I'm so grouchy because um, by the time the Maryland primary rolls around the field has been cut in half and I don't get to vote for my first choice half the time. You, you know it's funny because whenever I get those papers, uh, it's they're just so bittersweet and and I wallow it and I go, oh, this is exactly what we've been waiting for. This is and this is this is it. This is it. And then by the time I get to the end, I go, this will never pass. This will never. No, it'll never pass, but I'm just happy reading about it. It's like fantasy literature. I enjoy it for pleasure. I mean, I, electability is very important to me, and that may be one of my factors when I'm actually pulling a lever. But right now, in March of 2019, with lots of road ahead of us, I'm just enjoying listening to them make their really super intellectual awesome case. Yeah, but do you know what I think of every time I read that? I, I keep reading it at the end. I go, this is Trump's build the wall. She might as well be screaming, I'm going to build a wall because she's not going to do any of that. Right. Well, because they all make legislative right. proposals that actually aren't, aren't things presidents do. That's that's the biggest problem with campaigning for president is that they, they make promises that are actually the, in the purview of the House. And right. The Senate. So I would love for I would love to start hearing things that are possible that like hey i'm going to maybe reduce the deficit deficit by three percent my first year yeah i could see that happening i'm going to shoot for maybe third base <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna reintroduce environmental regulations that keep coal ash out of your drinking yeah, water yeah i'm gonna you know little things yeah. like that um, but have any of you guys been listening? NPR is doing a series called Opening Arguments where they're doing these like seven minute interviews with the presidential candidates and asking them to kind of lay out why are you the person. And so far, they've done Booker, uh, Harris and Warren. And they're really good interviews. But Kamala Harris is the best of those three so far, is my opinion. I'd be interested to see what you guys think if you listen. I, to them. I have not because I have I've been too busy cutting up. My Vanity Fair, because that that love piece on Beto O'Rourke. <laughs> I mean, it, he is just so dreamy with him on the cover with his black lab. I don't even know if it's his or it just happened to walk in. Like, ah, oh, you are so <laughs> just dogs. Right, love dogs him, love so him. Followed him. And, and I don't know if you. It, it's supposed to be reminiscent of that um that cut that picture of him and Ronald Reagan. Um, and they're just like, oh, this is just so American. Let me just stand here and look. <laughs> American. I mean, it is it is just the most dreamiest dreamy dream that I've ever dreamed. He's so dreamy, and I love Beto. I do. I love how aspirational he sounds. Um, this is the second time this week that I've said, I like something I do, and all the people around me went, okay, I'm buckling up. This is going to be good. Beto then was, he was being interviewed. I saw a clip this morning, and they were, and he goes on to explain how he's the only um, candidate who lives in a border state, Julian Castro, oh, yeah. <laughs> and he's the only one who's had a lot of direct um, contact 
with immigrants to see how they really improve our society, Kamala Harris, daughter of immigrants. So maybe Beto needs to get a little better at the part where he listens to other people. What? And okay. doesn't I, I didn't just hear talk. what you said. What? <laughs> and by the way, the other thing about <laughs> Beto is he doesn't take any policy positions that I can tell. And when you start contrasting that to people like Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, who take very specific policy issues, you may disagree with their policy issues. This guy is trying to skate through at this point just by being the kumbaya candidate. And I don't know how long that's going to work for him. Well, he's going to have to build it all out. The the guys on Pod Save America this week were talking about how, you know, this was not he didn't have a long deciding process to jump in. He jumped in much quicker than the other candidates. So like, even his website isn't well built out. What do you he mean he didn't have, have a long deciding um, process? Well, no, he <laughs> himself, like he, he made the decision. He hasn't been prepping for this for months. He's been thinking about it, but he hasn't actively been building the infrastructure for it. So like his website's underdeveloped. He doesn't have enough staff. He's never been to Iowa before in his life. So he's, he's got a lot of catching up to do in terms of the substance of a campaign. And he, you know, he's going to orate at us for a while. Hopefully, eventually it will gain some well, substance. Well, uh, you know, call me, call me, call me crazy. But I think if you're if, I, and I if do. you're in your mid forties <laughs> and you're running for president of the United States, you should already have a political philosophy and positions to back it up. Sure, sure, Donald well, Trump. You know what? That, you're, you're not wrong, Kevin. But that doesn't mean that everyone knows that <laughs> Donald Trump. So uh, a, a couple of things. First of all, I keep hearing people say that uh, if Beto gets the nomination, Texas will be in play. Bull. Let me tell you something. He lost Texas to Ted Cruz. There's no way he's going to win Texas from Donald Trump. So Democrats, you know, we we played this game in 2016. Hillary is going to win Arizona. Hillary has a chance in Georgia. Stop kidding yourselves. Beto is not putting Texas into play. It may be closer than it would be if we nominate a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren or a Kamala Harris, but he ain't winning Texas. And frankly, I don't think that his base is as strong as people think it is. I'll disagree about his base. But you know what? We saw, like, in 2016, we saw someone with almost no no, uh, no policy, no national policy, no idea what they were doing, blah, 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 come down a well, shiny gold an elevator. That was a quirk of history, Donald Trump winning. And he won because he's a celebrity and because people wanted to blow up the system. And you know what? Beto O'Rourke on the cover of Vanity Affair is a celebrity. Oh, yeah. No, he is. A, he is in the world of politics. He is absolutely a celebrity on a par with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. There's no doubt about that. And so is Barack Obama. And it may work for him. It may. In 2008. That's what I was just about to say. He is Barack Obama 2006. Whoa, 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 whoa. He may become that. Let's not coronate him yet. No, no, as far as celebrity status. He's ticking off feminists right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His his little statement about, I was born to do this, is making feminists annoyed because what makes you born to do this? Well, what makes anybody born to do that? Why is it bad to have self-confidence? Most people don't say they were born to do it. Oh, they all, well, they, they all think that they should be, anybody who thinks they should be president of the United States. Think it, but they don't say it out loud. They don't sit in Vanity Fair with their black lab and go, you know, I was born to do this. That sounds like a Bush kid or a Kennedy. I wonder whether Paul Manafort sits around thinking, I was born to sit in jail. 
because that's what he's going to be doing for the next five to seven years. Boy, I knew that he was going to get more time than the original judge gave him. I, I wish that the the combined sentence was running longer than seven and a half years. But I think that we can safely close the coffin on Paul Manafort. He's not turning state's evidence. He's not walking away from this. He's going to spend the bulk of his 70s in prison. And uh, he deserves every day that he spends behind bars. I don't know. Do you think he'll get an early? He look, He does not look well. And I'm wondering if like his medical conditions will progress to the point that they release him early so he can go home. No, to- no, he doesn't look well because he has gout. He has gout really? um, during the whole thing. You should. Oh, it should be easy to avoid gout flares in prison because that like don't eat red meat. Right. Right. And and that was the whole thing was he couldn't stand for the sentencing and he was in a wheelchair because too much fatty meat, too much deli. And I was sitting there going. (laughs) Okay. So, yeah, I I was like, are you kidding? The man has rich man's disease. Send him to the guillotine. Meanwhile, his good friend Donald Trump took on John McCain again this weekend. I don't even know why he does this stuff. He he tweeted that he was upset at uh, McCain for spreading the fake and totally discredited Steele dossier, which John McCain did not do. It's also not fake or discredited. Right. <laughs> He's wrong on a lot of points. And why he would want to take on John McCain today for no reason. I mean, you you want to take on the Mueller report, take on the Mueller report. You want to take on Christopher Steele, take on Christopher Steele. Why would you bring up John McCain? Uh, because he can't hit back and Trump is a coward and an asshole. My my favorite part in the Trump tweet, he did two of them actually attacking John McCain, was he said, John McCain last in his class in Annapolis. So he attacks his academic record. Which he won't even release his own academic record. And he has and to he's... threaten universities not to release it. Right. And I mean, that's insane. I mean, he makes fun of, which by the way, John McCain did not finish last in his class. It granted he finished fifth from last, but that's not the point. But you know what they call the guy who finished last in medical school? A doctor. Doctor. A doctor. <laughs> I should know. Um, I, <laughs> but that's not the point. Um, McCain, Trump won't even re- fine if he wants to play that game with McCain. Let's see his his uh, Wharton School of Business uh, records. Yes, I mean Trump. Trump has been he's been on a tear. Tweeting this morning, he was all over Twitter yapping about Fox News and how Jeannie Pirro and Tucker Carlson are the best, and everyone's just jealous and hates them. And t- Fox News is number one and stay strong. And da-da-da. I'm like, this is. Bizarre and insane. Yeah, and those Tucker Carlson tapes that have been released. Oh my god! Yeah, those, wonderful. They're they're wonderful. not wonderful. They're, they're they're disgusting. That's why they're wonderful. And, and and the day they were released was the night before he just did the scathing attack on Joe Biden for things that Joe Biden said like forty years ago, thirty years ago. The past is fair game, Tucker. Right. And and this was stuff that uh, Tucker said like 10, 15 years ago. You know, how does he look at his wife yeah. every day? Yeah, no, he was foul. And I mean, like the, the show he was on was called Bubba the Love Sponge. Yeah. That alone, that's just undignified. <laughs> so if you had to wrap this week up in a phrase, 
what would it be, Greg Matusak? What w- how would you put a title or a headline on this past week and the week to come? I would say it's going to be Beto-rific. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, how's that? Um, oh, oh, wait, wait, I got another one. It could be Gillibrandastic. <laughs> um, it won't be Gillibrandastic. <laughs> Well, we want to thank everybody for listening. We ask you to uh, follow us on Twitter at hashtag MPU podcast and on Facebook at facebook.com slash more perfect union podcast. And most importantly, please share our link on your Facebook timeline and tell your friends to check us out. We'd appreciate it. And if you like debates like ours and political discussions like the more perfect union and you would like to debate with like minded people or people not so like minded between shows, why don't you check out our Facebook group, Open Fire Politics? We're all there, except for Rebecca, who was there and can't stand it anymore. But but the rest of us are there, and we'd love to see you there, too. Rebecca, why did you leave Open Fire? Oh, because I was becoming unhealthily obsessed and spending too much time in Open Fire. It's deeply addictive. It's a lot of fun, and I, it was just too much of a distraction for me and my little ADHD brain. That's right. She couldn't read her 13 books a day. So... <laughs> I, I have a I have a new campaign slogan for uh, John Delaney. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> it, it goes uh, vote for John Davidson because that's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an eighties reference that only us people over forty five get. <laughs> DJ, we miss you. We love you. We miss you, DJ. Come back, please. I'll stop this, I promise. <laughs> stop. <laughs> Holiday tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Did you know there are over 10,000 wine grape varieties worldwide? Here's to thousands of gift possibilities. My go-to holiday wine is Chardonnay. I love it with turkey and potatoes. Pile on the gravy. Let me show you our more than 8,000 party-perfect wines that are in your budget and out of this world. Whether you're entertaining or just bringing the wine, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection with you this holiday. Now offering same-day delivery at TotalWine.com. Cheers! Holiday tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Did you know there are over 10,000 wine grape varieties worldwide? Here's to thousands of gift possibilities. My go-to holiday wine is Chardonnay. I love it with turkey and potatoes. Pile on the gravy. Let me show you our more than 8,000 party-perfect wines that are in your budget and out of this world. Whether you're entertaining or just bringing the wine, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection with you this holiday. Now offering same-day delivery at TotalWine.com. Cheers!